0: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of In Summation, The Final Word, a podcast for inquisitive minds on real-life courtroom drama. I'm your host, Paul Townsend, and today I'm very pleased to announce that I am bringing on a special guest for the episode, a former colleague of mine from the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, who is also now a criminal defense attorney, Adam Uris comes on to the show to discuss the Commonwealth of Kentucky versus Brent Hankison. Hankison, for those of you who may not be aware, is one of the Louisville PD officers involved in the raid that ultimately ends in the death of Breonna Taylor. Now Hankison himself is not the officer that fires the fatal shot, but Hankison does fire his gun approximately 10 times through Breonna Taylor's apartment wall into a neighboring apartment where three individuals, one of whom is a young child, were sleeping. Hankison was charged with wanton and reckless endangerment for this. Adam and I discuss search warrants, how they come about, the role of the prosecutor and the judge as gatekeepers, and what legally sufficient information and probable cause means when it comes to obtaining a search warrant to effectively circumvent an individual's Fourth Amendment right to be secure in their person against searches and seizures. We also discuss the strategy by the prosecution, how they tried the case, and why ultimately it didn't work, as well as the defense strategy, and why sometimes less is more. I don't want to waste too much time because it's a long interview, so let's jump right into it. My guest today is a friend and former colleague, Adam Yuris. Adam worked at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office with me a, a lifetime ago. We were in the same unit. Um, when I left, Adam moved on to the Violent Criminal Enterprise Unit, where uh, he successfully prosecuted a number of cases. And he has uh, since left the DA's office to go into private practice, much as I do, and is now... Uh, a named partner at uh, a law firm that may sound fairly familiar: Townsend, Matola, and Yoros. Uh, the Townsend, of course, uh, being my wife, Serena. So, my uh, my interest and TMU's interest are strategically aligned. Their success is my success, um, and so I am very pleased to have Adam here with me um, as somebody who you know doesn't necessarily agree with me all the time. So it's it's always interesting to get other perspectives, and I very much. Look forward to the discussion today on an issue uh, or a case that I think a lot of people have a lot of feelings about, uh, but a lot of people may not really know the inner workings of how the case actually went down. Um, So with that, Adam, welcome. I'm extremely happy uh, to have you here. And today we are going to be discussing the Breonna Taylor Raid but not the actual shooting of Breonna Taylor. Uh, We know that an officer named Miles Cosgrove actually uh, pulled the trigger on the gun that killed Breonna Taylor. Today, we're gonna be talking about the state of Kentucky versus Brent Hankison, one of the other officers in the raid who was charged and indicted and put on trial for wanton and reckless endangerment. So I, I wanted to get your opinion you know, as somebody who is in violent criminal enterprises, much in the same way that I used to work in the major narcotics unit of the DA's office, we would be the people essentially who would be responsible for writing these types of warrants. Um, so I wanted to start off the discussion by going through the warrant itself, kind of what the background facts were and what they were, what they claimed at least, to expect to find.
1: Hey, well, Paul, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I've- avid listener, first time caller. So looking at search warrant application processes from 3,000 feet, the sort of the meta process that, that goes into it. In order to apply for a search warrant, you need to establish that there's probable cause to believe that evidence that is related to a crime will be found at a specific location or on a specific person. Because essentially, what you're asking the court to do is to suspend an individual's Fourth Amendment rights against search and seizure. So it's a pretty high bar to reach, which isn't to say that judges always force prosecutors and law enforcement to reach the lofty standards that are intended uh, in applying for a search warrant. In my experience, the way that it would work is that uh, an officer would come to the DA's office in Brooklyn, let's say. And they'd give you information that they had received either a tip from a confidential informant or that they had done specific investigatory process that resulted in obtaining this information that there's contraband located at a certain location. Usually we're talking about guns or drugs. As a DA, your job is to be the first level of scrutiny uh, for that officer to clear in order to get that warrant. You're not supposed to just say, okay, great, I've got this information, let's write the warrant. You want to challenge it. You want to find out how many uh, how many people were involved in these observations. What was their firsthand knowledge of the criminality? The confidential inf- informant, if there is one, what's the measure of their reliability? How many times have they been a confidential informant for you in the past? How many times has that resulted in a recovery of, contraband. How many times have they applied for a warrant with you? What is their motivation? Is it uh, that they are looking for financial gain, which is often the case, or they're getting what's called court consideration, which meant working off a sentence or working off, uh, you know, good behavior for prior bad deeds. This case on the individual level was a little bit different. This case originated with an investigation by Louisville PD into an individual named Jamarcus Glover. Uh, Jamarcus Glover was Brianna Taylor's boyfriend for some period of time. There had been what looks like fairly significant investigation into Glover's drug dealing. Glover uh, admitted later and in jailhouse recordings that he had given the fruits of his narcotics trafficking, that being the money to Brianna Taylor to hold on several occasions, he never admitted that she knew where the money came from or that she had any involvement in his narcotics trafficking. But Louisville PD believed that Glover was keeping narcotics at the home that was ultimately raided by PD. And they sought a search warrant based on Uh, What they claimed at the time was information derived from a postal inspector. There's a lot of stuff I'm sure we'll get into about whether or not that information was accurate or not. But they applied for a warrant. Uh, At that time, they applied for a no-knock warrant, which I'll explain in a second, to be able to go into the location being occupied by Breonna Taylor. At the time, uh, they said they had observed Mr. Glover leave that location with a package, which was then later delivered and recovered and found to be narcotics, uh, and that because this was a narcotics trafficking location, uh, it was likely to be surveilled from the inside, uh, meaning that for the police safety, they wanted the ability to enter without knocking so that no one could get the drop on them and no one could destroy any contraband that was found inside the location if they saw the police coming.
0: So I want to uh, I want to harp on on one thing you talked about, because I, I think it's it's important and and I think you're spot on, you know, the, the information that goes into these warrants, it, it, it is required to be vetted by the prosecutor and it's required to be scrutinized by a judge, because, as you say, the waiving of somebody's Fourth Amendment right, their right to be secure in their own home is pretty substantial. So we all want to believe that for a judge to sign a piece of paper that eviscerates that right that law enforcement is pretty sure that they're going to get something there. And in this case, we're talking about an investigation into Jamarcus Glover. Now, Jamarcus Glover used to date Brianna Taylor, but they were not dating at the time of the warrant. She was dating a different guy, a guy named Kenneth Walker, who happens to be the guy who was with her in the apartment when the cops broke in. Uh, so my question becomes, at what point does this information just not get you there? It seems a bit stale. I mean, the information that they had was kind of scant at best on Jamarcus Glover. The fact that he may have come and gone there once or twice and th- there was the issue with the postman, whether or not uh, mail directed to Glover was sent to Brianna Taylor's apartment in general, vetting this. If this had come to you and you were in violent crimes... And and this information was brought that, you know, a guy who maybe used to date this woman got a package there. We think we're not really sure. Um, we don't really have anything tying her specifically to guns, drugs, whatever. But we want to warrant to go search her apartment anyway, knowing that he doesn't live there. I mean, how how do you view this if it comes to your door?
1: As the first line of defense, I can tell you it wouldn't have passed the sniff test, To me, the original sin in this entire debacle was the fact that the prosecutor who wrote the warrant didn't call the postal inspector who was alleged to have made the observation of Glover's mail being delivered to Taylor's address. As a prosecutor, as the person who's responsible for the physical writing of the warrant, it may be somebody else who swears out to it. But if you look at a warrant in Kings County, let's say, New York, Brooklyn, the bottom of a warrant, it says who wrote the warrant, who reviewed the warrant, what department investigated the warrant, your name is tied to it. So you want it to be factually accurate. I can tell you in my experience that I wouldn't submit a warrant if I didn't personally speak with the confidential informant, if I didn't personally speak with the officer who was the affiant of the warrant. Um, and if they were alleging other people making observations that were relevant, I wanted to talk to them. It's a phone call. It's not a hard thing to accomplish. Hey, just confirm for me this information because I'm the one putting my name on the line. It's clear that didn't happen here. A lot of stuff in the process here was accepted at face value where it should not have been. And then the next mistake is a supervisor observe is is at least in, again, my experience, a supervisor signs off on the warrants. So you're a grunt ADA who's physically writing the warrant, and you're the one who's going to go with the officer, their sources in front of a judge, and they're going to swear to it. You're going to be on the record in that process too. But there's a supervisor somewhere along the line who signs off on this. There were enough red flags where I would have said I want more. Okay? The simple act of a piece of mail being delivered to the address of someone who I believe is the ex paramour of a suspected drug dealer, it's it's six degrees of separation. And it is not close enough, in my opinion, to warrant the suspension of a person's Fourth Amendment rights. Whenever I would write a warrant, I would think, if I'm the one who's trying this case, and the defense writes a motion to controvert this search warrant, is it going to hold up? This one would not have held up. As you know, the location was never searched. There were no arrests. There was no contraband recovered. There was nothing indicative of criminality at that location that came out of this. So we'll never know if that warrant would have passed the test of of a motion to controvert. I suspect it would not have. I, I certainly would not have wanted to be the prosecutor assigned to try to secure an indictment against Jamarcus Glover or whomever was in that location. It seems that there was very little follow-through done to acquire the warrant. One of the other things you do when you write a search warrant is you give a physical description of the premises to be searched. Location X is a four-story red brick building with a uh, beige door. There's seven steps you have to approach before you reach that door. Uh, Once inside the door, there's a second door that you have to open It is a black door with the letters 2L in silver metal uh, with a peephole. These are the kinds of specific details you see inside of a search warrant. And the reason that it requires this specificity, in addition to the extraordinary step you're asking them to take in suspending a person's right against an unlawful search and seizure, is the safety of the officers and the people involved. These officers walked into a situation where they had no intelligence. They did not know the location to a T. They they were totally confused by the area that they were searching and they were unprepared tactically for the mission that they were seeking to execute, which led to not only uh, Brianna Taylor's death but Officer Hankinson's reckless discharge of a weapon, whether it was wanton uh, was an issue for a, a court to decide and I'm sure we're, we're going to get into that. This was a poorly conceived, poorly planned and poorly executed mission from start to finish.
0: I agree completely with that and and I would just add you've written countless warrants, I've written countless warrants uh, from the DA's office. You know, you have to include in the warrant not only the physical description of the location, how you get to the the subject premises and what you expect to find. But you have to justify to the court that you're seeking the warrant from why you expect to find certain contraband there. So this search warrant was for drugs and money. And as you said, there was no drugs found in the apartment. There was no wads of cash stuffed in any drawers in the apartment. And what they used to kind of say, we think there's going to be drugs and we think there's going to be money, is this uh, purported information from a postal inspector that Jamarcus Glover got a package there. It it then was transported with him, ultimately was recovered and drugs were found. But that one-off situation to me does not lead me to believe that if I raided that apartment, that there would be drugs or cash there. I, I would need something more, somebody who has been in the apartment to see that there is something there rather than one package that gets delivered and rerouted. I don't think the information that they had was sufficient to justify a, a warrant in this particular case.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. And you know what you would like to have seen is a confidential informant Uh, Being able to say, I've been inside the location, I've seen uh, a quantity of a product, I believe to be narcotics, which is stored inside a kitchen cabinet. You know, it's interesting. What I have not heard scrutinized is the judge who signed the search warrant. Uh, It's interesting that he's or she has been able to avoid criticism for what really amounts to inadequate intelligence to obtain a warrant. They set the bar so low here that even if you believed every single thing that the police said in their application, this would not have survived scrutiny from a judge.
0: I I agree. I think that often, you know, as a defense attorney, you're a defense attorney. You know, we've we've both been now on the other side of these warrants, filing motions to quash or motions to controvert or motions to suppress based on faulty warrants. And to a surprising degree. I have found as a defense attorney that warrants are not they're not well written. A lot of the time they really they open the door for defense attorneys to get any contraband suppressed just because they're either sloppily done or critical information is missing. And a lot of it really is on the issuing judge to tell the prosecutor, to tell the detective who comes, you know what, you just don't have enough yet. Bring me a little bit more, bring me something else, find me this information, and then I'll sign it for you. Uh, Because the alternative to that and and what we so often see is these warrants get executed. uh, People's rights are infringed. Sometimes evidence is recovered. There's an arrest, there's an indictment, maybe they're held, you know, on bail or on bond. uh, And then, you know, six months, eight months later, the case gets thrown out because the warrant's bad. And now you've had somebody who may be sitting in jail for six to eight months, you know, after having their rights violated. And, you know, basically that judge just washes their hands and says, OK, you know, yeah, the the other judge, the one that issued the warrant made a mistake. So I'm going to invalidate the warrant. Everyone go home. No harm,
1: no foul. And that's where the criticism of, of you know, judicial and prosecutorial immunity I think sometimes is warranted because even in a situation where someone is prosecuted and didn't sit in jail, that might be six or eight months. They're not able to work. Sure. That might be six or eight months where they have a suspension of their public assistance benefits. Right. That might be six or eight months where the people closest to them think that they are involved in illegal activity or. It may be a stain that they're never able to remove from their reputation even when the charges go. And it's funny, I'll I'll give you two quick anecdotes. I remember very early in my career in, uh, in the Violent Criminal Enterprises Bureau, one of the first warrants I wrote, um, I had a supervisor approve it and I went to court and we happened to be in front of one of the more meticulous and careful judges, someone who's still there right now. Uh, and he rejected my application for the warrant. Made me go back and said, you know, write it again. He said, it's not good enough. And I went back and I wrote it again. And I thought I did a better job. And he said, you're still not there. Go back, do it again. Got it on my third try. And I'll tell you, he was right the first time. He was right the second time. And he was right to approve it the third time. Uh, and because he went through those extra steps, no one ever later was in a position to challenge the application of that warrant because it was based on legally sufficient evidence. I have another case where this is now as a defense attorney, I read a warrant that was just about as sloppily and poorly written as you can imagine. It was a cut and paste job, literally. The person who wrote the warrant cut and paste uh, a template from another warrant and forgot to change the cut and paste in the first two paragraphs. And In those first two paragraphs in New York, it includes a description of the Location to be searched, the actual address, the name of the officer seeking the warrant, and what the basis for that warrant is. Well, in mine, the first paragraph had the wrong officer from the wrong precinct. The second paragraph had the wrong address from the wrong location. And then later, it gave a description of the accurate premises, and it gave a description, uh, the, the actual address correctly. So we later challenged that warrant. Because a warrant is meant to be very specific and it's meant, uh, New York courts at least have held that the purpose of a warrant is to remove discretion from an officer. That piece of paper is supposed to be your roadmap, the exact application of which you are supposed to follow. You are allowed to go into this location to look for this person or this substance in this location uh, within the premises on this day or between these hours. My warrant that I'm talking about was completely ambiguous. And it would have allowed an officer to say, you know, I can pick this first address or I can pick this second address. That's, you know, warrants are supposed to be hyper-technical. And the warrant that was issued in the, we'll call it the Breonna Taylor case, was lacking in specificity and was lacking in the kind of detail that you would want to see from not only a prosecutor's office presenting it, but from a judge accepting it. The judge in this case should have sent that warrant back and said, "This is not enough. I'm not signing this."
0: So let's get into the execution. It happens with decent frequency that warrants go to judges, judges sign them, uh, and then they get executed. And and most you know warrant executions don't end up with somebody getting killed, at least, or even most no-knock warrants. Um, but in this particular case, it's, it's really important to walk through what happened and how it happened. Um, so, of course, as, as you mentioned, the police department in Louisville got uh, a no-knock warrant, meaning they had the authority to uh, battering ram the door without announcing themselves. Now, at trial, the officers who testified all said that
1: when they got there, they did announce themselves, uh, but they heard no answer. There's actually a distinction to be made there. They were issued a no-knock warrant, but when the discrepancy with the postal inspector came out, they testified at trial, and they, they, their command told them to treat it as if it was a knock-and-announce warrant. So, though they were issued the no-knock, they, they allegedly treated it as a standard search warrant in which the police are supposed to announce their presence. The reason you do this is to avoid exactly the result that follows. Presumably, if people are inside with contraband, if people are inside with weapons, they're going to put their guns down uh, and they're going to surrender themselves or they're going to announce their intention not to do so. In New York City, any of the five boroughs of New York City, if you execute a search warrant, there's essentially two ways to do it. You either have a specialized team like the gang of narcotics units that do it themselves and they come in with a tactical plan. They come in with tactical gear, which includes a mechanism to open the door, which again has been surveilled before. So they know if they need a battering ram or a hydraulic pump. They have a specific order in which officers are to enter and clear rooms. Every officer knows exactly where they're going. The other way is for the emergency services unit to execute the warrant, clear the location, and then let the investigating officers inside. What I found interesting in the execution of this warrant was that it was a small team of narcotics detectives. I think there were three to four officers who were present at the time. Uh, There was only two going inside. They had no idea who was there. They didn't know Kevin Walker was inside. They had no idea about Kevin Walker at all. There were there was what was called rear security, which is where it looks like uh, Hankinson was, so that he was not one of the first officers entering the location. He was standing in a separate area so that if anybody tried to come running out the back, he'd be able to prevent their flight. And it seems like there was very little coordination in the execution of the plan, if there was a plan.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things that came out during the trial was the lack of any sort of tactical strategy or planning beforehand. They, the officer showed up to the location, and just to give a, a brief description, uh, Brianna Taylor's apartment was uh, on the ground floor and in the entryway area there are four exterior doors. So if you walked towards the building, you'd walk into a little alcove. If you looked left, be door number one. If you look front to the left, door number two. Front to the right, door number three. And to the right, door number four. So Breonna Taylor's apartment would have been door number four. So all of the entryways uh, are, are roughly in the same couple feet. And then it was a two-story building. So uh, also outside, there's a stairwell that leads up to the same thing. On the floor above. So there's five, six, seven, eight above. When they go to execute the warrant, the officers are not really in position. Uh, somebody had come out of one of the upstairs apartments uh, and was essentially shouting at the officers for making a lot of noise early in the morning. We know that Brett Hankison spent a lot of time speaking to the person upstairs, and because of that, was apparently not where he was supposed to be when they battering rammed the door. When they entered the apartment after they claimed they announced themselves and heard nothing, so they battering rammed the door, uh, Kenneth Walker, who was in the bedroom with Brianna Taylor, thought that they were intruders breaking into the apartment. He had a gun with him. He claims that he fired a warning shot into the floor, uh, but it appears that he fired a shot that struck one of the officers in the doorway. So that officer gets pulled out of the doorway and the other officers immediately
1: just start firing into the apartment. And that's uh, where Hankinson says that he sees the silhouette of a person with an assault rifle about to mow down members of his team. So he starts, I don't know what the right word is, spraying bullets, 10 shots he fired and all. So the, the interesting
0: thing is that Hankinson After Officer Mattingly is shot, Hankison goes around. He's not supposed to go around, but he goes around to the bay window that looked out the front of the building. And so you're right. That's where he claims that he sees the silhouette of an assault rifle. He says he sees muzzle flash. So he starts firing in basically at a perpendicular angle to where the rest of the officers are in the front. And he shoots. And it just goes the bullets go right through Brianna Taylor's living room wall into the neighboring apartment. And Brianna Taylor's neighbors in apartment three, Cody Etherton and Chelsea Napper, and they asleep at the time, right, with their young child. And bullets just start going right through their apartment. Some go out their back window. You know, they are understandably, shocked, panicking. There's chaos. They're, they're on the floor crawling. They have absolutely no idea what's going on. As you said, Pankeson sent 10 bullets through this living room of Brianna Taylor's without really appearing to ever stop and think about what might be on the other side of the wall he's shooting at.
1: Or being certain of what it was that he had seen Himself. And and I think it's interesting to note about Hankinson that we aren't talking about a rookie or right. someone with no tactical experience. He's a 20-year veteran. Mm-hmm. He was in fact a, uh, one of two officers on a police conduct review board inside Louisville, a very prestigious position that he held, which is reserved for officers elected by the Police Benevolent Association, who they believe should be in a position to judge the conduct of other officers. One of the things that I've always admired about police officers is their unflagging order in the face of tremendous chaos. You know, it's a wonder more of these situations don't happen. It's it's a, it's an incredibly chaotic and difficult and dangerous job that they undertake every single day. But you do expect them to execute these missions professionally. And Hankinson's behavior was much more, he, he acted like a rookie or a, or a trainee or someone who had never been on this kind of mission before. Hankinson could have very easily killed several other people. Yeah.
0: And and another interesting facet of this, and, and we don't really have the time to go off too far into the weeds on it, but this happens on March 13th, 2020. So we're talking like really infancy of... The COVID-19 pandemic, everyone's kind of wondering what's going to happen. Is this going to be a two-week thing? Is this going to be a two-year thing? Hankison isn't arrested until September of 2020. And during that period of time, the Louisville PD and the Louisville prosecutors do a lot, a lot of investigation. There's a special prosecutor who's appointed. They look into the situation fairly thoroughly, and at the end of the day, Officer Miles Cosgrove, the one who actually shot Brianna Taylor, is not indicted, but Brett Hankison is indicted. And I, I always found that very interesting from a legal perspective, because this special prosecutor felt that there was enough to go forward to charge Hankison, but not to charge Cosgrove. And I, I'm, I'm interested in, in your take about why that may have been, what maybe was going through the special prosecutor's mind to bring these particular charges, because, again, Hankison is charged with three counts of wanton and reckless endangerment. So, so give me your thoughts on, on why the special prosecutor thought that Hankison could be indicted for reckless endangerment, but Miles Cosgrove would not get indicted for the death of Breonna Taylor.
1: The well, first thing I would look at is the fact that despite my belief that this entire mission was flawed from its inception, once you breach the door and shots are fired at officers, it becomes a matter of appropriate police response to fire at someone who is firing at them. So you have to separate it into everything that got them to the location and everything that happened after the door was breached. They shouldn't have been there. But once they were there and Sergeant Mattingly was shot, they had a reasonable fear for their safety. They had a reasonable fear for their lives. And they used deadly force to defend themselves from the perceived threat of deadly force. I think as a prosecutor, I would not have brought charges against Cosgrove or Mattingly or the ones who were inside the apartment. But Hankinson's actions are in a way independent of the Breonna Taylor tragedy. Because Hankinson abandoned the best practices of a police officer, and he behaved in a manner that reasonably could have put other individuals in danger of losing their lives. Now, of course, a jury disagreed with that, ultimately. But when you talk about reckless conduct, you're talking not about intentional acts, you're talking about a person ignoring a substantial likelihood of of a dangerous outcome a person willfully disregarding the dangers that could occur from their conduct and when you're talking about a police officer behaving in a wantonly reckless manner you're saying they ignored their training they ignored their tactics they ignored everything that they've learned and they disregarded the risk of danger to civilians to their fellow officers and they didn't think before they started letting off shots in this case. I think it was a much easier case to make against Hankinson than against Cosgrove. I think it was a much easier case to say that his behavior was outside the pale, that it was beyond that which a reasonable officer would have done themselves. And I think it was more reasonable to look at his conduct apart from the death of Brianna Taylor and say there's still... Serious questions about the legality of his behavior, whereas to look at Cosgrove or Mattingly or any of the guys who breached the door and say, "Look, I'm going to go to a jury and ask them to convict this person of shooting back after one of their own was shot," Uh, you know, I think there's a strong civil case, and and obviously the city of Louisville agreed because they settled with the Taylor family for for a very large sum of money. It was a trial they did not want to be a part of, understandably. And sometimes civil remedies are more appropriate than criminal punishment. Sometimes a person behaves in a manner that is inappropriate, but not necessarily criminal. And I think when you're talking about how the LMPD unit arrived at Breonna Taylor's house or apartment that day, that's what you're looking at. But Brett Hankinson's behavior certainly rose to the level of making a prima facie case for wanton, reckless behavior.
0: All right. So let's let's talk about the arguments that were made. So Hankinson's trial took place uh, not too long ago, earlier this year. Uh, The special prosecutor on the case was Barbara Whaley. And a man named Stu Matthews acted as his defense attorney. So the, the prosecutor's case, I think it, it was kind of how you have walked through it. This is a guy who has decades on the force. He's a decorated officer. He's somebody who sits in tribunals to judge other officers' actions and whether or not they did the right thing. He has extensive training. Uh, he has uh, training in tactics, in the use of firearms, in the safety uh, of firearms, and what he did just disregarded all of the training that he had for him to, as you very aptly state, spray bullets into the building and, and at trial, you know, they the prosecutor, Miss Whaley, harped on it over and over again, showing pictures. So I, I think it was a very obvious narrative for the prosecution. I think it was a very easy narrative strategic decision to make about this to say he had the training, he had the knowledge, he disregarded everything, and people's lives were put in danger as a result. And then from the defense, obviously, the argument was in the heat of the moment, things were going crazy. He acted reasonably for the situation. What I want to get a sense from you is if you are the prosecutor, and that's kind of the narrative that you're going with, How do you view this case? Do you try and streamline it to to focus directly on the issues, you know, limit the number of witnesses that you have, make it a very targeted focus of his training versus his actions? Or do you expand the universe of witnesses and try and and really kind of hammer home the danger, the fear, the chaos that he caused and pull out from multiple different witnesses exactly what these actions resulted in.
1: First, I, I I will say that I don't think that the facts won out in this case. I think that the representation won out. Stu Matthews did uh, what I think that Barbara Whaley should have done. He kept it simple. He only summed up for about 20 minutes. Barbara Whaley went on for hours. She got buried in the weeds on this case. When you are presenting a case to a jury, you want to keep it as simple as possible because you're ultimately asking a group of people to go into a room and answer very important questions that have life and death ramifications. I think Whaley made the case too complicated. I think she made the case too long. I think she lost the jury in her summation. It surprised me that the jury didn't deliberate for a couple of days, even just for the sake of let's test out every argument over and over again. I think that they were thoroughly unconvinced by Whaley and they were certain that Matthews was right. And I think his confidence in presenting a 20 to 25 minute summation gave them that period at the end of the sentence to be able to say, you know what? He's right. This is simple. We don't like what Hankinson did necessarily, but we can't convict him of a crime here.
0: Yeah, you know, having watched both of the summations, when Stu Matthews got up and he spoke, and I was expecting him to speak for much longer. You know, as a defense attorney, I, I have never <laughs> finished a summation in 20 minutes. Um, yeah. I, I assume you haven't either. And, and even as a prosecutor, you know, prosecuting misdemeanor crimes, I don't think I ever summed up in less than 20 minutes. But when I heard it, as soon as he said thank you and went to sit down, I my first reaction was that was perfect. Yeah. That was exactly what he needed to do. When Barbara Whaley got up, she spent the first half hour talking about Hankison arguing with the neighbor upstairs. Irrelevant. It, it was completely irrelevant. And and halfway through it, I was just sitting there thinking, like, When is she going to actually discuss the case? She talked way too long about the other officers and what they were doing. And it wasn't until about the 45 minute mark that she first said, oh, and by the way, there was no assault rifle recovered there. Hankinson never saw an assault rifle. Kenneth Walker never had an assault rifle. And then she went right on and went back to something that was
1: completely irrelevant, There's been a lot of study, scientific study on attention span. The average person can maintain their attention. I think it's for something like 47 to 50 minutes before they need a break. That's why most school settings have their classes for 50 minutes. Stu Matthews left them wanting more. Barbara Whaley just bored and confused and put them in a position where It was very hard for them to focus on what the actual issue was. I remember I was prosecuting a a gang case. It was a very uncomplicated attempted murder of a gang member by a gang member. And I had a supervisor at the time. This was the one of the first gang trials I did. And though I was a very experienced trial prosecutor, when you're working with a supervisor, you're, you are kind of at their mercy when they tell you they want something done a certain way. And I remember that, you know, we, we put in six weeks worth of evidence and we're getting up to get ready to do the summation. And the supervisor calls me into his office. He said, how long do you plan on summing up for? And I said, yeah, I might go an hour. I might go 45 to an hour. He goes, if you go anything less than three, You're going to have a problem with me. Now I'm sitting there thinking, I love the sound of my own voice, but three hours, my God. So he, he made me use a PowerPoint presentation, which is not my style. And he, uh, you know, had me do all of these little sort of bells and whistles, which are very much his very effective style that works for him. And I ended up summing for over three hours. And I swear I saw jurors about to nod off. Uh, I kept looking to him to say, you know, Are are we are we there yet? Can I can I land the plane? And uh and he just kept saying, you know, go on, go on. And uh so I just kept going and going. And we got convictions in that case, but not for the top charges. And I genuinely think if I had had the discipline uh to say, this is a simple case, ladies and gentlemen, you heard a witness testify of the injuries he suffered, you heard him clearly identify the defendant, you had forensic evidence that was recovered, you heard a forensic biologist talk about DNA. This isn't complicated, ladies and gentlemen. The only reason for you to acquit is that you don't want to convict, not that you're not convinced of the evidence. I know that I've had many conversations with prosecutors and defense attorneys over the years about the temptation to get up and speak for three minutes and sit down. There's that feeling that that confidence that, you know, I think I can get that message across really, really quick. And you get a little bit afraid that, gosh, if I do that and I lose, I've committed malpractice somehow. So you mm-hmm. convince yourself that that you need it needs to be this you know, great oratory. Right. I think that's what happened here. I th- think Barbara Whaley had this mountain of material and information that had been collected over the course of a very painstaking and thorough investigation. And she kitchen sinked it. She just yeah. thought she had to throw everything in there as a prosecutor. The first thing they teach you about summation is your job is to show the jury how to fa- apply the facts to the law right? Here are the elements of the crime. Here's the facts from this case. And here's how you can apply it to show that this guy is guilty. That's not ideally a terribly complicated rubric to follow. She made it more complicated than it had to be. And she left them in a position where, where they didn't completely understand why he was guilty because she didn't show them. Arguably the most famous speech in the history of this country is the Gettysburg Address. People have been talking about it for 170 years. Nearly it's mm-hmm. 272 words. Brevity, make your point, get in and get out.
0: Right, and we see this. We see this so often. Um, I know when I was when I was learning, especially especially when it comes to cross examination. You know, every single good defense attorney who I have spoken to about cross examination has always said the key to an effective cross is getting in, landing your punches, and getting out. The same kind of idea, I think, applies to effective summations. You know, there's a lot of evidence that comes out at a trial that ultimately doesn't really make a difference at the end. That stuff, if it's not going to hurt your case, forget it. Just don't bother
1: there are two types of litigator when it comes to how you deliver a summation. There's the I'm going to prepare every word of it, and then there's the I'm going to extemporize, but I'm going to have a, a a spine to it. Whaley at some point put a structure for this summation together, and as a veteran prosecutor, a special prosecutor, she didn't think, "Let me give them my greatest strengths at the beginning. Let me really hone them in again." The law of diminishing returns, even if you are going to speak for an extended amount of time, they're only going to maintain attention for the first part. So give them your best stuff up front and then any counterpoints you think you have to work through in the middle and then come back and hit your points again and sit down. That's it. I was taught trial advocacy by the late, great Charles Hines. And Mr. Hines Favorite example of how to best advocate a trial was a was was to use two movies: The Verdict by Paul, uh, starring Paul Newman, which is one of the greatest movies of all time, and My Cousin Vinny, also one of the greatest <laughs> movies of all time. And he would play Joe Pesci's cross examinations of the witnesses five minutes. Get in, get out, make your point, sit down. He would play Joe Pesci's opening statement, which, by the way, somebody used against me in a trial. Ladies and gentlemen, everything that guy just said there is bullshit. He would use that, and he would say, "He would say, folks, don't overthink it. If that's all you got, that's what you work with." You, and you know, just for
0: just for our listeners, Charles Hines is the former district attorney of Brooklyn. When uh, when Adam and I worked there, I also uh, took trial advocacy with him, and can affirmatively state that we did watch. Uh, a lot of different scenes (laughs) of My Cousin Vinny in in Trial Advocacy. And and I agree that uh, and uh, most of my non-legal friends have asked at some point what I think the the best legal movie is in terms of uh, kind of how things should be presented. And I always, always say My Cousin Vinny. And everyone thinks I'm kidding because it's a comedy. But the reality is you're, you're absolutely right. The way that that movie depicts how to... Uh, appropriately conduct yourself to give yourself and maneuver yourself into the best chance of winning is to do exactly what Joe Pesci does in My Cousin Vinny.
1: Think you a death and identity?
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, there's also the, uh, you know, now we'll, we'll cap it off in, in a couple minutes, but um, the the kind of elephant in the room with this trial, obviously, is the death of Breonna Taylor. and And they both Stu Matthews and Barbara Whaley both made it clear in their openings and their summations that we're not here to discuss, you know, the death of Breonna Taylor. Um, but that was such kind of a watershed moment. It really created such national awareness. And, you know, this is the Louisville Metro Police Department, you know, Jefferson County, Kentucky that's catapulted into the national spotlight when this raid goes sideways. And I just wanted to to get your opinion. Had this trial happened in, say, you know, so he's arrested in September 2020, when this is still very much in the news, it's still on people's minds, it is still causing protests and marches and demonstrations, if this case happens in early 2021 instead of early 2022, do you think there's any chance of a different outcome or do you think that, that this trial would have played out in, in a very similar way to what actually happened?
1: Well, I think if the only thing that was different was the timing, then I think it would have played out the same way. I think the best way to prosecute this case would have been, first off, I wouldn't have limited myself to say that Brianna Taylor's death wasn't relevant to these proceedings. I think again, I think Whaley made a tactical mistake. And had I been charging this case, I may have filed charges of manslaughter against Hankinson for contributing or causing the chaos um, that led to the death of Brianna Taylor. If for no other reason, then I think it would have also strengthened the wanton reckless charges. Because, you know, oftentimes what a jury does is say, look, I don't want to convict of everything. I don't want to acquit of everything. So they do what we call splitting the baby. They acquit of the top charges and convict of some lower charges. Strategically, I would have liked to have been able to argue to the jury that Brett Hankinson's behavior contributed to the death of Brianna Taylor. I think that I would certainly not have opened on... Breonna Taylor's death is tragic, but that's not what we're here to litigate. I would have allowed the jury or at least asked the judge for permission to allow the jury to consider the overall picture of what happened, all of the consequences, everything that happened that led to uh, that result. But again, having studied this case and the participants in it, I think this is more of a case where Barbara Whaley lost this case. Stu Matthews won this case. This was not won or lost on the facts. Mm-hmm. This was won and lost, I think, in presentation and argument. Right. Trials are spectacle. I mean, they, they yep. necessarily
0: are. It is. It is part, uh, you know, advocacy, but it's part showmanship. You it know, tells the better story. Yeah, you you want the jury to like you as much as agree with you, because those two things are related. They go hand in hand. It's very difficult to be unlikable to the jury and still win, um, which is why, you know, people have attorneys to represent them, because a lot of defendants themselves are unlikable, but their attorneys are quite charming. And so they can, by proxy, convince a jury that the client himself is, you know, is not so bad because,
1: well, his lawyer's a good guy and he seems to like him. So maybe we can like him too. Well, and no, it's funny because you, you say that. And I, you know, I i have obviously a, a big listener to your podcast here. And I think back to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial mm-hmm. and I thought that was another case where the advocacy won the day. I completely agree. And I think that's completely applicable here. You know, in both of those cases, Really skilled advocates won the day for clients who, by the letter of the law, are guilty. I believe that the best advocates are, are the ones not so much who get the jury to like them, get the jury to trust them. Yeah. It's a matter of trust. Uh, I have a, I you know, my mantra since I became a, a criminal practitioner, I have it tattooed on my arm, is a quote from Shakespeare, Act One, uh, Scene three, line 78 of Hamlet, to thine own self be true. As an advocate, as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, when you go into that courtroom, if you try to be the showman, if you try to be the professor, if you try to be the great orator, and that's not who you are, a jury will shut you out from the moment you start. But if you go in there and you're, you're yourself, look, I'm, I'm a tremendous smartass It's just a part of my character, as you well know. Mm -hmm. And I I show that to the jury because that's who I am. And so when I let them see the parts of me that aren't, you know, shiny and happy and bright, but are authentic to who I am, and then I go to them in a summation and I say, folks, you know, the evidence showed this. What I'm really saying is you can trust me. You know me. You know I wouldn't lie to you. And that's what Stu Matthews did. He stood up for 20 minutes. And he said, you trust me. And they did. They trusted him. And I'll just I'll just cap it off by
0: by saying that I I think, in addition, another really impressive thing that Stu Matthews did, which was a big risk, um, was Hankinson's testimony. I thought that that was an incredibly well prepared testimony. And I think you're absolutely right. At the end of of. Brett Hankison's testimony, it opened the door for the jury to say, I I trust this guy and I trust his lawyer and I I am on board with what they are selling.
1: Oh, yeah. And, you know, anytime you have a defendant put themselves on the stand, it's the most terrifying moment, not only for the defense attorney, but for the prosecutor Mm -hmm. as well. I mean, every prosecutor is hoping they're going to get, you know. Not to get bogged down in movies here, but the, uh, the Colonel Jessup, you're goddamn right I did mm-hmm. about the Code Red. They're all hoping, you're, you know, that you're going to get it. When good prosecutors are trained, you are never going to get a confession from a defendant, a stand. Right? It's not going to happen unless you have an affirmative defense. They're not going to give you what you want. So what do you do? Find a couple of points that help your case get in, get out. The amount of preparation you do put into preparing a defendant to testify is frightening because you need them to be authentic and not overcoached, but prepared. And it's their life on the line in a lot of these cases. And especially when you're dealing with police officers who are, I find oftentimes by nature, emotional people who certainly don't like being accused of illegal conduct. They take it personally, understandably. Police officers are very tricky witnesses. Yeah. So all the, all the ways that the LMPD messed up, Stu Matthews excelled. And that feels like a great place
0: to cap it off. So Adam, thank you so much for coming on. I had a really great time discussing the Brett Hankison trial with you and trials in general. We did a little work with search warrants. We talked strategy and, um, I think movies, we talked movies. movies. And I think I think we both agree that at the end of the day, this this was a winnable case for the prosecution. But at the end of the day, I think better lawyering got the outcome.
1: I agree. And, you know, it's not always the case. But I do think that this is a pretty clear example of why having a very skilled advocate matters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's what you are. That's what I try to be. Uh, And I thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Hope you'll have me back. I would love to.
0: And uh, again, this has been Adam Uris from Townsend, Matola and Uris, the law firm which uh, my wife, Serena, is currently a partner at. So thank you so much, Adam. And uh, we will definitely do this again. Thanks, Paul. So that's the episode on the Commonwealth of Kentucky versus Brent Hankison. Again, thank you very much to Adam Uris, a friend and a colleague, for coming on to the show and discussing these topics with me. And a special thank you to Dan Townsend, who I think I challenge excessively every time I bring on a guest to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the entire catalog on Apple Music, Spotify, or on the show's website, insumation.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and get notified when new episodes come out. If you have a topic that you want to cover or a case that you think would make for a good discussion. You can email me at insumationpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet me at insumationpod, find insumation on Instagram, leave comments on the show's website, or look me up the old-fashioned way at my law firm's website, robertcgotlieblaw.com. That's it for the Commonwealth of Kentucky versus Brent Hankison. Thanks so much for stopping by, and I hope that you'll come back for more.